Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. What a day to be alive in America. This is SiriusXM Progress. I'm John Fugelsang. We are live and interactive for the next three hours, coast to coast, for all 50 states and the 51st state that we call Canada. Chris Hauseltz, our executive producer, running this thing from South Carolina. Thea Harper producing from Brooklyn. I'm here in Manhattan Island. Iowa Senate passed a child labor law letting 14-year-olds work six-hour night shifts, letting 15-year-olds work on assembly lines, and letting 16- and 17-year-olds serve alcohol. That's why you got to ban abortion. You need those fetuses to grow up and work. Kevin McCarthy unveiled his debt plan. Uh, I'm calling it the Talking Heads reunion because it will never happen. In Kansas City, Andrew Lester pled not guilty in the shooting of Ralph Yarrell, who he shot, which will set the case up as yet another stand-your-ground law, making it a bold new world for more white men to shoot unarmed black children. And finally, uh, Samuel Alito kicked the can. The man who may have leaked his own decision banning abortion has given himself and the court until Friday at midnight to make a ruling on the Fifth Circuit court decision to repeal Mifepristone's decades-old FDA approval. Yeah. Why do you think they're waiting till midnight on a Friday? Is it because they're going to have a ruling that's going to upset other conservatives? Or is it because they're going to have a ruling that's going to upset, you know, the majority of Americans. We've got so much ground to cover and so much to discuss. We're so glad you're here with us. And we've got some great guests tonight. Jenna Friedman, one of our favorite comedians, Academy Award-nominated writer. She worked on The Daily Show and had her own great, great show on Adult Swim. She's got a hilarious new memoir called Not Funny, Essays on Life, Comedy, Culture, etc., it is very funny. John Nichols of The Nation is going to join us to talk about Jim Jordan's grotesque self-own trying to take down Alvin Bragg and failing miserably. And uh, the great Bob Seska is going to come over to talk about, well, uh, Stop the Steal organizer Ali Alexander uh, and Karma. If you haven't heard, Ali Alexander is the revoltingly fake Christian fascist right wing dude bro who started Stop the Steal. And this week, it was revealed that he has been, shall we, what's the word the Republicans used? Yeah, grooming, grooming underage boys for sex. And that's because Milo Yiannopoulos, who supports men and boys having sex, outed him with the help of Nick Fuentes. Yes, the most evil people in our society are turning on each other. And if that's not a reason to exhale and breathe, 
I don't know what is. So we want to hear from you guys tonight. A lot of ground to cover here. Um, and we're glad you're with us. Let's, uh, let's, 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 let's do a show, shall we? Now, um, a lot of people are still very upset over the payout for Dominion Voting Systems to Fox News. They wanted to see more. I wanted to see more. I wanted to see Fox pay the full $1.6 billion instead of just under half that. We all wanted to see someone on Fox News have to read a statement on the air saying, yeah, we lied. But that wasn't what it was about. I mean, Dominion didn't care about making Fox look bad. Dominion cared about clearing their own name, and that's the deal. But, you know, it's still amazing to remember that if you're angry, we talked about this last night, but Dominion still has pending lawsuits against a lot of other election deniers. They're still suing Rudy Giuliani. They're still suing Sidney Powell. They're still going after Newsmax and OAN and my pillow guy. Imagine how horrified they are all are right now to find out that $787,500,000 is the opener. <laughs> and again, Fox News is still being sued by Smartmatic for $2.7 billion. A lot of lawsuits coming up, so I, I understand the need to be discouraged. But, but really, think about this. Dominion was worth $80 million as a company when this week began. They're now about to get over three quarters of a billion dollars. And they can use that money for their other lawsuits against Newsmax, against OAN, against Sidney Powell, against Mike Lindell, the pillow guy, against Patrick Byrne, against Rudy Giuliani. And don't forget, Smartmatic, they're suing Fox News and Newsmax and OAN and Sidney Powell and Rudy Giuliani and my homegirl Janine Pirro and my homegirl Maria Bartiromo. I've worked with so many of these people and Lou Dobbs as well. Jared Yates Sexton kind of nailed it on Twitter. He said, Fox News faced a choice following 2020. Amplify the big lie or risk losing its audience to Newsmax OAN or some other upstart. Fox chose to lie, worsened the country, and the cost was $700 million. A drop in the bucket of their profits and worth the investment. <sighs> that story's not going away. But you know who is going away? You know who's on the verge of going away? You know who we may see really have to go away? Ron DeSantis. We're a long way from him going away, but it's begun. Now, Trump has been beating him up ferociously. And sometimes when Trump beats people up, you, you feel bad for the people, even when they're people that you shouldn't feel bad about. Rex Tillerson, you know, General Mattis, you, General Kelly. It's like hey, stop, John McCain. You, 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 here, I'm OK with it. National Public Affairs is out with some new polling on the GOP presidential primary. This time they surveyed South Carolina Republicans. Now, their former governor and their current senator are both running for president, so they asked them their top choices. This is just South Carolina. This is the state that Chris Houselt, our producer, seceded to because he was tired of living in the union. If the 2024 Republican primary election for president was held today and you had to make a choice, whom would you vote for? Donald Trump, 43%. Ron DeSantis, 21%. There is a 22-point differential. <laughs> Sorry, Ron. And Trump is mercilessly beating this guy because, I guess, you know, he's a Florida resident. He's criticizing his own governor. I support that. He posted uh, after the governor made new threats to build a prison next to Disney. He wrote, De Sanctus is being openly destroyed by Disney. His original PR plan fizzled, so now he's going back with a new one in order to save face. And I'm sitting there punching myself because Donald Trump just told the absolute stone cold truth about something. 
He called DeSantis' clash with Disney an unnecessary political stunt. I, I, I don't know how to handle Donald Trump being so right on. I don't know how to handle Donald Trump being more articulate than me. And then you think about it, and you realize Stephen Miller probably wrote that. So holy crap, I have to deal with Stephen Miller being more articulate than me. Now, DeSantis is not doing that well with the congressional endorsements either. Uh, he got uh, Representative Laurel Lee to give him his first congressional endorsement, someone from his own state. Of course, uh, he met with three dozen members of Congress on Capitol Hill, and it didn't go well. Right away, Congressman John Rutherford and Congressman Brian Mast announced that they were going to be the sixth and seventh House Republicans from Florida to endorse Donald Trump. That's right. So far, seven of the congressmen from his own state have endorsed comb over Caligula. Lance Gooden from Texas tweeted, Today, after careful consideration and a positive meeting with Governor DeSantis, I have decided to endorse President Donald Trump for 2024. <laughs> uh, Josh Crashauer said on Twitter, to lose Greg Stube, Brian Mast, and Byron Donalds, the type of Florida Republicans you'd expect to be on the DeSantis bandwagon, is a leading indicator, something not right with the DeSantis outreach. But it's important to remember, before you feel bad for Ron DeSantis, for all of this very deeply public humiliation, he's an awful guy. He's, he's a really bad guy. He voted three times to raise Social Security's retirement age. And we're going to have to start saying this. Politicians who want to raise the retirement age are politicians who are fighting for cuts in Social Security. It might take some of our MAGA friends 20 seconds to put that together and realize it's true. This man voted six times to turn Medicare into a voucher system. This guy voted six times to raise the eligibility age. This guy twice voted to cut funding from Medicare. <laughs> and now... And now, this week, it's been a year since this doughy mediocrity declared war on transgender children and medical privacy and Disney and corporate free speech and the taxpayers of Florida with the don't say gay law. Let's go back in time because everything old is new again today. But the parental rights and education bill, which people call don't say gay. Ron doesn't like that. He comes out there and says, don't say, don't say gay. But the bill is full of lies. It's based on performative cruelty and bigotry. It prohibits teachers, you'll recall, from leading classroom discussions on gender identity or sexual orientation for students only in kindergarten through the third grade. And it bans such lessons for older students unless they are age appropriate or developmentally appropriate. So that was the big claim they had. It only applies to very young children. They said this is an effort to shield children age four through eight from sex education and, and from any acknowledgement that LGBTQ people or their families exist. <laughs> now, some of you are wondering, does it really keep up to grade three or four from saying gay or, or is it for all of high school? Well, uh, here's what the bill actually said when it was signed into law. And again, <laughs> this is very current, even though it's a year old. Don't say gay said. Classroom instruction by school personnel or third parties on sexual orientation or gender identity may not occur in kindergarten through grade three or in a manner that is not age appropriate or developmentally appropriate for students in accordance with state standards. What standards, you ask? Ron doesn't know. Ron says, fuck around and find out, groomers. Remember, this is what they said last year. Anyone who doesn't like this bill is a groomer or, or a pedophile or, or a pedophile groomer. Or someone who, who grooms other pedophiles. They're hysterical and they're lying. I mean, you know, same people say, hey, why, why do we need this law when there's literally no problem with teachers uh, teaching sex to kindergartners? Well, we don't have a problem with voter impersonation either. But they still like their voter ID laws. You groomer. 
But here's the most evil part of the law, because it really is sort of like the Texas abortion bounty laws. Any parents who are angry that a teacher discussed anything with a kid they don't like about sexual orientation or gender identity, which could mean talking about straight people or cisgender people. You could say, I have a mom and dad and violate the law. But of course, the law wasn't written to penalize straight people, was it? Any aggrieved parent can sue the school district. And if a court in Florida agrees the instructor violated the law, they can issue an injunction, damages, attorney's fees to the parents. This could run into thousands and thousands of dollars will certainly result in teachers being fired. And again, it's a vigilante scheme. It rips off Texas's playbook where, where, where they empower private citizens to abuse the court system and more or less sue the hell out of anyone they want. I mean, it, yeah, you can say gay. It just means we can sue the crap out of you. And that's the lie. So yeah, DeSantis is the smart version of Trump, but he's still as dumb as a sack of wet mice. This is, of course, right around the time that he issued guidelines uh, telling doctors they had to medically detransition all transgender kids in the state of Florida and ban them from social transition treatment. So no names, no pronouns, no clothing changes. So much for freedom, huh? So much for individual liberty. <laughs> he ordered the Florida Department of Health to order doctors to medically detransition all their kids. How insane must your ego be? To think that your hang-ups, your personal opinions, your likes and dislikes should have any control on other people's gender identity, any control on other people's lives. I mean, doctors have to be forced to stop name and pronoun changes? Well, that's what small government's all about. And again, Ron's like, hey, I'm not doing it. I'm just forcing doctors to do it. No one wants their little kids to be taught in school about sex. Parents should teach their own kids about sex. We agree on that. Or don't teach your kids about sex and bury it deep, no matter what kind of acting out that leads to later in life, because Ron turned out fine. But you see, remember when we were warning conservatives and warning everyone a year ago that the DeSantis don't say gay bill, it wasn't just going to be for kindergarten through third grade. Remember, we said, no, this is going to be for all kids. Look at the word or. It's a Trojan horse. And we were told that we were groomers. We were told over and over, don't say gay was only about preventing sexual instruction to little tots. And they called you a pedophile. They called you a groomer if you ever spoke out against it. But we always knew the truth. This was a step towards erasing LGBTQ people. Well, now, one year later, Florida has approved the expansion of don't say gay to include grades four through twelve. They lied about everything a year ago. And today, the State Board of Education voted to bar Florida middle school and high school teachers from intentionally teaching students about sexual orientation or gender identity, I, I, as opposed to in, unintentionally. You, you, you know, I came here to talk about Magellan, but no, let, let's, let's talk about queer theory. These people are insane. Unless the lessons are part of a reproductive health course or are expressly required by the state's academic standard. In other words, the Florida Board of Education has just come down on the side of having more discrimination, more emotional problems for teens, more marginalization, more depression, more suicide. <laughs> and again, teachers who don't follow this, teachers who still talk about uh, uh, sexual orientation or gender identity to high school students could be suspended, could be sued, could have their teaching license revoked. Who the hell's going to be left to teach children in Florida? The new rule goes so far beyond what last year's 
parental rights and education law went for. That just prohibited classroom instruction on sexual orientation, gender identity, and blah, blah, blah. After that law went into effect, the state board used it to crack down on any school policies that impact LGBTQ issues, like bathroom use, protection for kids who share personal information with school staff about their identity or sexual orientation, thinking they're safe, talking to an adult they can trust because they could get the crap beaten out of them at home. Schools have rolled back other policies. Pasco County schools have banned safe space stickers that show support for LGBTQ students. Yeah, fuck them. Let's take the kids most at risk and make their lives harder. I say this all the time. If you're a straight cisgender person, you wake up in the morning and you have a choice. Do I want to make life more painful for transgender Americans? Do I want to make it shittier and harder for them? Or do I want to show them some compassion? I mean, think about this. You can be in Florida, be a 12th grader. You can be old enough to cast a vote for president. You can be old enough to enlist in the military and fight and die for this country. But you're not old enough to have your teacher explain Justice Anthony Kennedy writing the majority opinion in 2015 legalizing gay marriage. That's Florida. You can be a 12th grader. You can be 18 years old and legally forbidden from getting any education on matters pertaining to sexual orientation or gender identity. Folks, they lied all along. Don't say gay won't protect gay kids from anti-gay abuse. But it will protect straight kids from ever having to learn that anti-gay abuse is wrong. And that's the point. Just like his Stop Woke law did nothing to stop racism. Just stopped them from teaching white kids that racism was bad. And DeSantis has done this performative cruelty because he thinks it'll get him to the White House. You see, Ron DeSantis knows he's meant to be president. He knows he's supposed to be president. He was born to be president. It's kind of like he's he's a president, but trapped in a governor's body. And he just wants to transition to president. Can't we just let him transition? I say no. I look at you, and I don't see a president. I think you identify as one. But you just want us to accept that? We want to know what you guys think. Mac is calling from the great state of Wisconsin. Hello and welcome. Hey, John. Is this real? Am I really talking to you right now? This is re- this is actually an AI simulation of me. It's designed to be just as irritating as the actual one. Okay. Well, I, my chatbot wrote this for me. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm a little nervous because I, I I have a man crush on you, and I'm I'm uh, I'm straight uh, cisgender male. Married, nice. but Thank I you. feel like you're, you're. I feel like your sexy liberal magnetism is grooming me uh, because well, I, I find myself <laughs> addicted to your show, and I'm not sure what to do now. In grade school, I did not. These feelings are confusing. I know. I, yeah, I didn't have any of this teaching in Catholic school in the '80s, and my high school didn't teach any of the stuff that DeSantis, or I like to call defenseless, is been removing. Uh, but you know, it's still a great thing to have it. But. I turned out okay. Uh, I mean, I, I, I feel the same way. I, I didn't have any kind of, I didn't go to Catholic school, but like when I was in CCD, uh, getting confirmed when I was 13, my teacher was an incredible homophobe and was talking about the fags and the queers all the time. And I was the only one saying, this is a Christian class. Yeah. Why are you using these, these hateful terms? And they all thought I was crazy because it was the 80s and we all knew God wants you yeah. to hate gay people. Yeah. So, I mean, well, you I turned out great. You turned out great. I turned out damaged. But I mean, it's 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 about raising a more decent generation for, you know, equality and decency in America. Yeah. 
Paul was smart enough to become not become an altar boy. I don't know what went on behind the curtain, but I, 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 never, I never did that. But I wanted. But were to you? Can I can I ask a question? Because um, uh, were you like a, a homophobic kid growing up? Like I was raised no, by my peer group to be all. deeply homophobic. You, you weren't. That's, well, that's great. The thing is, I didn't even know what gay was, really, probably, because they didn't teach me any of that, which would have been helpful. But luckily, I didn't turn out. You know, my instincts are not to be a racist, I guess, which I want to wow. talk about the racist shooting of the young black boy. And I want to talk about Dominion real quick, because I know. Tell time me, please. Is of the essence. Please. Okay, so hindsight is twenty twenty, And you may agree that are you kicking yourself a little that we should have known they were going to settle because there's no facts. There's never been any evidence. If the, a good lawyer would have known that there was evidence and then, you know, the fact that they're not going to the fact that gonna, there's no trial is because they just stalled, because if they yeah. had real evidence, they would have used it. So this right there, instead of using the text messages with the right, won't acknowledge this is the gotcha moment right here. Aha. There was mm -hmm. never anything there. If there was real. What do you think of that? Yeah, I mean, you know, most libel cases never actually go to trial. And I, I kept really thinking that there was going to be some kind of a settlement. And then when there wasn't, the, the day the trial was supposed to start, I thought, oh, wow, we're there. Now it's been revealed that they actually tracked down a negotiator who worked with the Bosnians and who, like, negotiates with yeah. warring governments to come in the day before, found him in Europe and brought him in to negotiate last minute to have the settlement overnight. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. you know, it's very disappointing. I think we all deserved a trial and we never got it. We deserve to see Tucker Carlson yeah. put his hand on a Bible and catch on fire. That, that would have been great. Don't get me wrong. It, it definitely is bittersweet. And that's what everybody's saying. But I, I think there's an upside that we're missing is that this is the ultimate gotcha moment for the right. These, I tried it out on my Trumpy friend and he was stumped just as I tell thought. Me. I'm like, this is great. I'm just going to tell him, look, there was nothing there to begin with. If there was evidence, wouldn't a good lawyer use that? So anyway, mm -hmm. now to the to the to this. I, I thought you were going to do white supremacist Wednesday today. I was all ready for this one because <laughs> this guy that shot this young boy at his doorstep. You see his picture. Yeah. He's kind of a hideous old white-looking racist male. I hate to be racist saying that, maybe, but it's it's not racist look? to call someone racist. I mean, we we, we don't yeah. know. Maybe maybe he yeah. maybe he would have shot an, right. an unarmed Caucasian teenager at his door. Right. Uh, maybe right. he's just a psychopath so and not a racist. So here's the thing. My 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 MAGA nut friend sends me a tweet because that's all he does is watch Twitter. They're all over there. It's another story. Yeah. So the tweet is the outrage, phony outrage is what I call it. They're always uh, phony. You know, they're always outraged. Um, and it's phony outrage, like phony patriotism. Always. That this that Biden is going to Biden's going to be calling the young black boy. But Biden is not going to call the girl that got shot in the driveway that was 20 years old and was white and died. Ooh, what does that mean? Well, I, I tell you, if you can't see what that means, you got a problem. Black people yeah. have been oppressed and still are in this country, and uh, this is something that you point out. And, yeah, it's bad that the white girl got shot, too, and is dead. But this was clearly a gotcha moment where this guy said he was shot him because he's black. So, yeah. bam, there's your white supremacist Wednesday. You're exactly right. And again, you know, he can't call the girl because she's a little tough to get in to get a hold of right now. But exactly, at the end of the day, yeah. all these people saying this, they're, they're all saying this, but they all think that these demented folks should have had re easy access to firearms anyway. You know, I mean, everyone who's criticizing Biden for not calling a dead girl on her phone, they're not fighting for anything that would have changed this outcome. But you know what he did there also, John? He denied racism. I believe, you tell me if you think this is right, denying racism 
is almost as bad as racism because that's what perpetuates it. That most people don't believe, at least white people I know, don't believe in systemic racism. They'll say, well, there's some racism. It's not as bad as it used to be, but there's no systemic racism. Yeah, they don't and get it. it they don't, or, or they don't want to get it. It's like, I live in New York City. Come, right. come here with a black friend and see who hails a cab first. That's systemic racism. It's embedded in our culture. Look at how white people do more recreational drugs than black people, but who's filling up our prisons? That's institutionalized racism. And this whole shooting of this 16-year-old kid is, is a direct result of of the GOP no. using racism since the days of Nixon, since before Nixon, but also the stand your ground laws. You know, this is yeah. everything we saw with everything we saw before when when George Zimmerman became a right wing hero because he murdered somebody who was kicking his ass in a fight he started. And it's exactly the same right, dynamic you know, all over so again. History is repeating itself. Is that what you're telling me? Of course. It is. <laughs> oh yes, you know, violently. Denial and distraction. Those are the two key things. D and D think that Dungeons and Dragons. Denial you, and distraction. They deny. Mac, it. why why are you, you afraid of calling? Mind. You're good at this. You should call the show all the time. Uh, you know what? Uh, <laughs> I'm going to keep calling because I do love. Please. You, but, uh, it'll it'll uh, take some time away from Kendall the racist, but you're welcome okay. anyway. You know, it's funny you bring that up because I was going to say I get jealous of Kendall because you throw a lot of love. Do I have to disagree with you on something to get a little extra love? Because, you know, there is one technical thing you say sometimes, and I'm pro-choice, trust me. But when you say that Jesus would not be, you know, against abortion today, it might be a technicality because the well, it is a technicality. Is not the same. Just as the founding fathers didn't see of AK-47 in the future, Jesus did not see an abortion pill. So maybe if you right, but but today, but, but hang hang on, hang on now, hang on. We got to go to break. But let me just comment on that because I, I I didn't say Jesus would be for abortion today. I would say that his religion of Judaism is never against abortion. The Bible's never against terminating a pregnancy. Never tells you to lock women up for it. They're free in Israel right now. But the greatest sin of right-wing Christianity is they prioritized things Jesus never talked about, like criminalizing abortion, being cruel to LGBT people, being cruel to migrants, you know, get guns. And they elevate these things Jesus never talked about. They pretend that that's what Christianity is, and they vote against everything Jesus did talk about, which was welcome the stranger. They hate that. Take care of the poor. They hate that. Take care of the sick. Be kind to those in prison. Pay your goddamn taxes and stop the death penalty. They hate the stuff Jesus actually did stand for. Technicality. It was just a little technicality. (laughs) No, absolutely. Absolutely. But you know what? That technicality is more than the right wing have trying to punish poor women with greater poverty. Mac, thank you for the call. We got to hit a quick break. We'll be right back with more of your calls. We're just getting warmed up. We'll get to everyone, and I will thank you so much for your patience. This is Progress. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsang. 
Right now, I am so pleased to welcome back one of my favorite comedians and writers, one of my favorite people in this godforsaken industry, uh, someone who refuses to tolerate the casual sexism of our culture and makes it funny and minds pain for comedy. Jenna Friedman is a terrific comic and a filmmaker. She created Indefensible for AMC and Soft Focus with Jenna Friedman on Adult Swim, and she's worked on The Daily Show and on Letterman. Of course, she received an Academy Award nomination for her work on Borat's subsequent movie film. It's always fun to talk to Jenna about anything, but her new book, her first, is called Not Funny. Essays on life, comedy, culture, etc. And uh, it is as brilliant as its author. Completely, completely hilarious and one of the most political books you will read this year at a time when so many women's rights are being rolled back. Jenna Friedman constantly shows us how to fight back and make it entertaining at the same time. Jenna, it's good to see you. Welcome back. Oh, thanks so much for having me. That was such a cool intro. <laughs> well, it's great to see you. I think the last time I, I don't know, I think the last, the, the, was the last time I saw you when we were at Michael Moore uh, at his show backstage, I think. that It might have been, yeah. it was a definitely pre-pandemic, right? Yeah, it was pre-pandemic and you've been very busy. Congrats on becoming a mom and on your special and on this Thanks. book. Um, I, I, I have to tell you, I, I only can wonder what it's like to be on a book tour and be asked how many times uh, to explain your title. <laughs> the book is not called, funny? of course, Not Funny. Yeah, Essays on Life, Comedy, Culture, etc. Um, I just imagine, of all the dumb questions you could ask, why call it Not Funny? Um, <laughs> it's not a dumb question. So I do talk partly about why it's called Not Funny in the book. There's so many reasons yeah. it's called Not Funny. There's so many times all of us comics hear that we're not funny or we wonder if we're funny. And I just... Uh, I just thought it was like a perfect title. It's also kind of defensive driving, like, well, I told yeah. you the book wasn't going to be funny. So, um, but there is a, there is like an anecdote um, about how, and I talked about it on a late night show on this now, but about how yeah. um, I tweeted something that I thought was fine. It was during the RNC when I found out that the McCluskeys, uh, the, that couple that, sh that pointed a gun at, um, Protesters were speaking oh, at yeah. the RNC. Mm -hmm. I thought this is really disturbing. And so then I had a blue check mark at the time, which was something that Pete, that uh, it's hard to explain to the kids these days, but it, it kind of meant something uh, for a period of time on Twitter. <laughs> and I bit. had these fake breaking news tweets. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if like the worst person in the world was speaking at the RNC? And so I actually thought about Kyle Rittenhouse, but then I was like, that's too dark. He would never be lionized by that party, which is so ironic given where we are now. Um, so then I was like, what about that guy, Brock Turner? So I wrote like breaking news, Brock Turner, Stanford, like sexual assault assailant or whatever, predator, speaking at the convicted sex offender, speaking at the RNC. <laughs> and people thought it was real. And the tweet went viral and I got a lot of blowback for it. And some Stanford professor was quoted in some newspaper being like, comedians, joke, not funny. And I just thought it was so weird that the conversation was about like my tweet as opposed to the fact that like half the population, more than half the population, that people would think that a sex offender would be speaking at the RNC. That's the conversation we should be having. But mm -hmm. instead, it's like comedian crossed the line with their tweet. So I also tweeted uh, that who gave world COVID speaking at the RNC. So it wasn't like that was my only tweet. Um, media literacy, yeah. I thought, could have been an interesting thing people could take from from a tweet that was picked up by the AP, by Newsweek. Uh, that was false. So I don't know. It just it, and, and then that all happened at the time, like right when I was thinking about what the book was going to be about. And so right. 
I just thought, you know, let's call it not funny. And yeah, here we are. <laughs> but I mean, that's, you see, what I love about your work is you're one of the comics who realizes that our job is to turn pain into gold. And you consistently do something that I think George Carlin did, which is uh, you know how to make an audience feel less lonely. You will find humor in the pain of your own life. And I got to say, I thought I had the weirdest election night 2016 story. I was on TV all night with Piers Morgan for Good Morning Britain, uh, <laughs> sitting in between Jerry Springer and Ann Coulter. It was very Fellini-esque. But you're, you, you opened the book with a moment when you really felt not funny. And it was on Stephen Colbert's panel for their election night special. What was it that made you decide to open your book with that story? This was the version they did on Showtime. Yeah, that was a defining moment in my career, which is weird to like look like look back on a career when you feel like you're still hustling, you're still in it, and you're still trying to prove yourself. But I've been doing, doing comedy for 15 years. That was kind of like the first time that I was coming onto the scene as like a person who wasn't writing for someone else. I was my own person. I spent I was at that theater wrote for Letterman in 2011, and then I worked at The Daily Show, and then now mm -hmm. 2016, I'm on the show. Not, you know, like, and not as a behind the scenes writer, but actually like as Jenna Friedman, this comedian no one's ever heard of. And um, obviously we all know what happened that night. And there was just like, yeah, I mean, I saw the writing on the wall. Anybody following that abortion politics or whatever knew this was coming. Um, and do you want me to say what happened? Yeah, if you don't mind, because it's it's a great. No, it's fine. Um, Stephen, like we didn't know they didn't want us to watch the news. They were like, we'll get your reactions to what's happening in real time. And so we got on stage. It was pretty clear that Trump was going to win. And Stephen wanted us all to weigh in on the panel. And I was the only woman on the panel. And I was just, you know, devastated. And he's like, what? Ha Jenna, you're a woman. This is on you you know, do you think Hillary's going to win? Like, how are you feeling? And I didn't, I'm not really media trained. That's the other elephant in the room. If <laughs> It's not already clear. <laughs> and and he asked me how I felt. And I was like, do you want to know how I really feel? Or do you want my TV friendly answer? And he's like, I want to know how you really feel. <laughs> and I said, it feels like an asteroid is about to crash into our democracy. Get your abortions now because we're going to be fucked and we're going to have to live with it. And that, I hope I can say that. Afro-Adam. You may. It's encouraged. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Cool. And that fucking so um, that when people got because it was live, I was actually I did a taping tonight of Colbert and I said a joke that is most definitely going to get cut. And I'll yeah. tell you offline. But as a bit for Stephen to cut, I was like, mm -hmm. here's a joke. He's the best. As, like, as are you, I, I people who work in the space. I just feel like you guys are my like, like comedy comrades. And I just you make I've this world less lonely and I've less scary. Because it's scary. So, yeah, I was getting death threats and I was trying to be like, haha, you know, there are people who are pro-life when they send you death threats. That's progress. Um, and I do want to just like, I do want to just quickly say that I am so upset with the term pro-life that I don't even want to use it at all because it's like such a misnomer. They're mm -hmm. like faux life. They're literally killing women, literally at this point. Yeah. They're I abortion had criminalizers. I, I can't even call. I can't even call them anti-abortion, Jenna, because they're pro. They're pro Kermit Gosnell's. Like they're they're yeah. not going to they're not going to end abortion. They'll end the safe legal abortion. They're pro illegal, unsafe, unregulated abortions because that's the only job they're creating. They're pro um, curing favor with religious extremists in their party and uh, controlling women 
by um, trapping us in cycles of poverty. Just they're, they're, they don't, they, 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 they are just the worst. I, it's heartbreaking what's going on. And it's so hypocritical that it's not even funny anymore. They're pro gun, right? They're, they're, it's just like, what you're literally voting for child labor laws as you're killing kids in school. But yeah, you're pro-life. Like what? I'm sorry. I yeah. <laughs> now I've, I'm like not funny. <laughs> but but he, here's why. Here's why your work means so much to me. My favorite quote is uh, from Billy Wilder when he said, "If you're going to tell people the truth, make it funny, or they'll kill you." And it's been a very busy year for me since Roe v. Wade because I go after this with the Bible, and I will use the Bible against the Bible thumpers because I think we have a responsibility to address this stuff, but make it funny. We have to find a way to make it funny. And when I think of people who can take the subject of abortion and actually get real, genuine laughs out of it, um, you're right up there. I mean, you did such great abortion material in your special while you were pregnant. But I couldn't help but think how ironic it was that you were telling this joke on the Colbert stage because that's where you had worked for Dave. And you tell a story in the book about how uh, not only were abortion jokes not allowed on Dave's show, the word abortion wasn't allowed on Dave's show. Again, I'm, I'm like in shock that you read the book. This is amazing. <laughs> it's fascinating how many people do interviews with you that don't read um, the book. But uh, yeah, I mean, Dave was of a generation and still, still late night is still that way, I, I would say for the most part. And it's mostly yeah. male and yeah. I mean, it's all male and they're just afraid of this thing that we have to be talking about because it's happening. And if we don't talk about this stuff all the time, then we don't control the narrative. And you have people actually convinced that the other party is pro-life when they're literally like pro-death. And and being yeah. a new mom, which I love my son, but being a mom isn't, it sucks. Oh, <laughs> like, yeah, it's, I, it's, it's just like, it is the most subjugating thing. And mm. people are always like, you know, did it, reaffirm how you felt it hasn't like changed how i felt about any of this but it has really crystallized how effective a tool controlling women's bodies is for like yes. a fascist government yeah. because when when you are forced into motherhood or even when you want it that's the irony like i love it i wouldn't do anything differently i'm so happy to have him i feel so lucky to have him but it's completely subjugating in every way. Like I, yeah. I have an incredible husband and we have uh, an incredible nanny who's like allowing me to like be on my book tour. And so, but I'm like, wow, if you want to control women, force them to have babies. Yeah. If you want to control it's... men too, if you want to, yeah. talking feminist politics aside, just looking at like capitalism, if you want to control men, force them to have babies because There's then everybody universe. has to be yeah. like slaves to this capitalist machine that keeps a little baby alive because oh, yeah, we but don't there, have there, like, there's a universe of men who, there, there's so many men who don't realize that gutting roe v wade has ruined their lives as well but i got the yeah. same question all the time when i when i broke down and, and finally reproduced um and mine's, <laughs> in fifth grade. mine's in fifth grade now but people always said so do you feel different about abortion now that you've held a baby in your arms i'm like no i'm really committed to raising a man who won't try to make those choices for a woman that's how i feel yeah. i want to raise a decent feminist sex positive progressive guy who understands that a woman's body is her property and none of my child's goddamn business so it for me it only it only deepened my feelings about it because that's the only opinion I think men are allowed to have 
It's, I'm like, can you tutor my child? Because I'm really tired and he has oh, to I'll learn the same. I'll your child out. You send him over to me when he's eight and I'll let him know. I'll let him know about feminism. Okay, Absolutely. Perfect. I'll mansplain it to him. <laughs> um, you, you know, I, I, I have to ask about uh, the chapter in your book that's getting the most press, which is where you sat down with some of your favorite male comics that you know and, and guys like Bob Odenkirk. And you, you did something, I see a lot of press saying, Jenna t- turns the tables, but it wasn't really like that. You just sat down with other artists you admire and exposed them to the kind of questions women comedians are very used to and male comedians are never asked. Thanks for saying that because I looked at the press and I was like, uh, it was like cringy because I'm like, I'm not, these are my friends and they're supporting me and they're supporting the book. Jenna Friedman they, turns the tables on John Stewart. Click here. Oh my find God. Out. That's yeah. so embarrassing. But yeah, no, John was incredible. I mean, they, they knew what the bit was going into it and, but they didn't know what the questions were. And it, they were really interesting conversations that I, I, I did record them, but I almost wish I filmed them because it was so Odenkirk was the first person who did it, and I was asking him these questions, and I was sweating. <laughs> and I'm just like, I'm sorry to ask you this, but Whitney Cummings was asked this in the New York Times on this date. Like, I have a paper trail, too. It wasn't just hypothetical questions. We were all asked these questions. Isaac Ch- Chotner kept asking me questions about, like, you know, were you at Letterman during the sex scandal? Like, were you, like, so it was like, right. I have to ask. I asked, like, I think Jim Gaffigan that or John that. And he was like, I might have been on the show then. <laughs> you know, like, but well, t- tell, us some of the, tell us some of the questions and who the male comedians you sought out were. So the comics, I sought out everybody. I have a funny story about how I emailed Norm MacDonald because we worked together on Roseanne for a oh, day before it became the Connors. That's the most the Norm MacDonald show ever, the story ever, yeah. Yeah, and, and Norm was like, oh, I'm totally down, but I'm really busy right now. Follow up with me in a week or two or something. And then he died. <laughs> so it was he like knew he, he, totally, was, he knew he was dying yeah, when he, he said totally yes knew to he was dying. It's the most he Norm didn't say yes. story I've ever heard. He didn't heard. say yes, but he was like, that sounds cool or something. He was like very, and I was like, that's uncharacteristic, but I'll oh, take he's, it. I've, I've got five promises from him to appear on this show, and I'm holding him to it. So you're exactly right. But so um, you, sought out, you sought out Norby. You went to Gaffigan. You went to... to Jim uh, Gaffigan, Patton Oswalt. Fred Armisen, John Stewart, Reggie Watts. I think, am I missing anyone? Yeah. And Bob Odenkirk. Oh, yeah. And these were questions like, you know, how, how do you manage to be sexy and funny at the same time? Like they were Can just... men be sexy and funny? Um, <laughs> who Do you write your own material? Which was the one most people were offended by, which is the one women get all the time. And like, it's just so insidious. Um, the ones that uh, didn't make that viral piece that went around uh, were, do you think uh, women should accept Lou's apology? That one I got such a kick out of. I asked, do you think men should accept Lou's apology? And then that was a question that Isaac Chotner at The New Yorker asked me. And then, but to his, to be fair to Isaac, he did preface that he was going to ask me about Louie. And I was like, oh, I'm promoting my adult swim show. It's the New Yorker. I would never sit down with anyone else to talk about this stuff, but I do trust that the New Yorker will not take me out of context and it ended up being a good interview. But it was still funny that he also asked me about Letterman and was asking me about all this stuff. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's a great it's a, it's a great bit. I wish you had filmed it, but it's, it, it works great in print as well. How did these men respond to these inane questions that female comics have to Field they everywhere. all responded differently because like women, they're not a monolith. You know, every man is his own. Per- you know, but they all responded differently. I think like uh, Reggie, for example. Oh, Eugene Merman was also in it. 
Okay, Reggie, uh, and these are people I know and love and trust and I've known for years and they're friends of mine. And I think at first Reggie was trying to crack jokes, but then as I kept going through the questions, he was like, oh my God, you get these? Like, And it was, I think that they, towards the end, were all just like, oh my God. And I think that it was, it was a cool, it was more of like a social experiment because then they started to feel what it felt like to be a female comic. I, I, at yeah. the end, I don't know if I put this in the interview, but I was like, how do these questions make you feel? And I think it was like Fred or Eugene or someone just talking about how like the questions themselves, like they're so divorced from you as an artist that you think like, has this journalist even, do they know my act? Have they seen what I do? Do they even care about what I do? It just felt essentially objectifying, which is like, bingo. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> and I love even the fact that people are saying a male comedian, which is so funny to hear male comedians like, yeah, you mean a comedian? You mean a comedian, uh, yes. <laughs> yeah, and so even that is fun. It still kind of makes me giggle when I hear someone say male comedian. I mean, I, I don't want to, you know, be too harsh on our industry because there has been progress made, you know, Absolutely. no doubt. And I'm, I'm curious, since you began doing stand-up, I mean, how have you seen it change? What what is what has evolved uh, before your eyes that you can point to and say, oh, there's progress? I mean, marginalized voices are getting paid. They're yeah. they're getting seen, platformed, heard, and paid. Um, I think the industry itself is a bastion of progress in some regards. You also have Joe Rogan spewing misinformation to like millions and millions of people sometimes, you know? So mm -hmm. it's tricky, but I, I personally believe, look, Harvey Weinstein's in prison. Bill Cosby is touring and I'm opening for him. Just kidding, but I would. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I wouldn't take it, whatever. I would not change my material, but I, I, I wouldn't open for Cosby, but I do, but I do believe that female comics who do open for men who forget, I shouldn't have meant, I should not have said that. I understand <laughs> what you're I, saying. I know you what you're talking about. You. We, we have, we have many mutual friends. Female comics really... who open for Louis, go get that money. That's all yeah, I'm saying. I'm get that exposure. I'm... I love Lynn Coplitz. I'm glad she's getting paid. You know, she's a great comic. I'm, I'm glad I didn't she's know playing Lynn the big was opening for him, But I love Lynn. Lynn was one of the first people who really supported me when I moved, when she's I came great. to New York. She's great. Yeah. And yeah. again, you know, I mean, Louis has a right to still work in the industry. I mean, you, yeah. you talk about cancel culture in the book in a really smart way. So it was a bit jarring for me to read it. But like for me, what's been the most alarming What a compliment. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> when comics I admire say anything like that, it's just that's. All the oh, reason well, I do this, but keep going, keep going. Well, I mean, because <laughs> it talking. doesn't exist. There is no, there. you know, the death penalty is cancel culture. What we had here was yeah. consequence culture. Me Too was actually a great moment of reckoning where mediocre men were finally told you can be replaced. And it just not even mediocre, but people who committed what would be like either workplace misconduct or in some cases criminal. Oh, absolutely. Offenses. Absolutely. But I mean, that's what's interesting to me is that when we call it cancel culture, what makes me crazy is how unevenly it was applied that, you know, I mean, the, the example I use is, the, you know, James Franco couldn't get an Oscar nomination for uh, his movie, but the Oscar went to Gary Oldman, who'd been accused by his first wife of beating her head in with a phone. Like, yeah. it seems like, you know, our outrage is always selective. And that was the frustrating part yeah. of, of Me Too for me. But it also, you, you talk about how it can be overblown. You say it's always kind of funny when a famous comedian whines about cancel culture on a platform where we can all hear them. Yeah. Yeah, I feel that way. I mean, I I wanted to, I mean, I, I finished the book a year ago, so I feel like woke is like the new cancel culture, but woke is, exactly. I think, actually easier to define because woke is like, 
awake to structural inequality. That's how I define woke. Someone who sees structural inequality, acknowledges it, whatever. But cancel culture is a lot more ambiguous because you've got Al Franken. That was a political hit job. Uh, you have, you know, but then you have Bill Cosby. That's a, a legitimate rapist who should be in prison. Um, but because cancel culture is this like catch-all phrase that you can't define, that gives it staying power, and that makes right. people like Tucker Carlson dedicate hours and hours of TV to it because he has nothing legitimate to say because his, yeah. that's not his job. His job is to outrage people and to do it with misinformation and hyperbole and lies. And cancel culture is like this perfect boogeyman. And my whole take is like, everybody's talking about cancel culture, they're getting paid to do it, and I want in on this grift. But then when I started thinking about it, and that was the hardest essay to write, because I'm not like a think piece journalist. And when you put yourself out there with like a point of view without a joke to hide behind, you're very vulnerable. And but well, hang on a second. To hide behind, it's not. It's not hiding behind. The jokes are the delivery. The jokes are the lube. The jokes are the delivery. The jokes system are the, for the lube. Truth. But I also I think they're like they're the lube. But to me, they're the armor. Like sure. when I troll gamers on Adult Swim, if I do it with a like like a, a fake game where I'm like squirting fake oh, yeah. semen on them, then it's a joke that I can hide behind, <laughs> and they don't come after me because right. God it's forbid comedy. people don't think that they're funny. You know that they don't get but the it's, joke. It's, so it's, to it's, me, it's, it's art versus it's, propaganda. You get farther with a dick joke and the truth than yes. with just the truth. Yes, that's true. And it is it is lube, but it's also and it's weird, like saying it like this, because I really believe it. Maybe it's because I'm like a female comic or whatever. Like it does feel like there's a safety behind a joke, whereas when yes. you're just saying what you're thinking, it feels less safe for some reason. Um, yeah. To me personally. Uh, um, so that yes, was a very hard... much so. I, if I could keep the radio show funny for all three hours, I'd be a lot more comfortable. <laughs> but sometimes I have to get serious right? and just argue points without yeah. a cunning little button on the end of it. But I mean, that's what makes the book so special. And, and what I loved is, you know, you talk about Roseanne. We've both worked with Roseanne. I love her. She's always been very public about her mental health issues. I do think there's been a lot of change in the last 10 years with the person I know, who I will always love and admire. But what was your experience like? Because you were working for her when all this happened with her show's reboot. I actually, I never got to meet her. That oh. whole thing went down my first day. She hadn't come in yet. My wow. first day, I was going onto the lot in an Uber because I'm a bad driver and I'm still trying to get better at it, but whatever, I'm in LA. I look at my phone, I see her tweet. I'm like, oh shit. Like, our show is going to get canceled. It was my first day writing on Roseanne. She had seen a set that I did on Conan, and she hired me, and I had a writing sample, and they hired me. And so I was, like, scared but excited to write for a Trump supporter in 2017, like, for a yeah. lot of people to see. It's kind of that thing of, like, if you're not at the table, you're on the menu. And I just felt, like, really excited to get in there and work on that show. She tweets that. I, I get sick to my stomach. I go to my office. I see that one of my comedy heroes, her debt, her office is next to mine, Wanda Sykes. I'm like, well, if Wanda's still yeah. on the show, the show's going to happen. Look down at my phone, Wanda Sykes, <laughs> leaving the Connors. Yeah. And at that moment, I was just like, damn. And I was like, do I quit? Do I stay? Am I problematic if I stay? And then the network was just like, we're, we're canceling this. And then we had a month or so off, and then they retooled it, and it became the Connors. And I had cleared like six months of schedule, so I did right. end up writing on the Connors. But it was a completely different show. And I do talk about Roseanne in the book, and I, I can't defend her. It's not my place to. I get it. But yeah. I do think in general, and I, I'm afraid of generalizations, 
But in general, I do believe that female comedians are held more accountable okay. really for like our actions and or for our words than male comedians are for their actions. And it's not just with Roseanne. I've seen it in other situations. Oh, I think Kathy Griffin could have a word or two about that. Oh, yeah. my God. That was so scary what happened to her. And her yeah. photographer, Tyler Shields, didn't even get like a slap Nothing. on the wrist. And the whole thing so, was his idea. But what I said at the time was, you know, if I'd been there in the, the room, one I idea said, like a guy doesn't take credit for. <laughs> I Sorry, I'm, that's but but I, I said I, I've said to her many times, if I was in the room with you, I would have said, don't do this, Kathy, don't do this. Uh, but that awful crisis, that pain that she went through led to, I think, the best stand up of her life, like a three hour mm-hmm. headlining tour with no intermission or opening act around the world telling the story of what happened. I, I think it, it it birthed the greatest comedy of her career. Yeah, I mean, I, I've always been a huge fan of hers. I saw her at South by Southwest in 2019, right before the pandemic, and she was incredible. Yeah. And I look to people like her because she's just like a like a constant fighter and she's so funny and she's been through it. And what happened to her was insane. And uh, yeah, I mean, all of us, especially comedians who like work in the kind of political comedy space, you always kind of cross the line sometimes to know where it is at every point yeah. in your career, you maybe less so when you get to Kathy's level, but you still do it. Um, I said a joke tonight on Colbert that I think they're going to cut, but if they don't, I'm definitely going to get blowback for it because some guy in the audience whose Twitter handle was um, uh, go, let's go Brandon something mm-hmm. already sent me like a hate tweet. I just blocked him. I was going to engage him, but then I was like, don't. But yeah. I mean, you know, we're always, we're comedians. We, Slings and arrows. And yeah. And in a moment like this, it's like, we, I don't know. I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's tough, but it's so important that like for a, a healthy society to have people like Kathy Griffin doing what she does. And maybe if she steps up the line, getting a little blowback, but not to the level that she got exactly any mean, you know, by any means. But well, a healthy society, comedians are part of it. Let, let, let me ask you uh, before I let you go uh, to watch yourself on Colbert. We're having this conversation a few hours after the Supreme Court has kicked the can down the road again on the ban on Mifepristone, which we've all learned how to pronounce now, uh, which was used for over 50% of all pregnancy terminations in 2020. They said this was just going to go back to the states. They lied. They're trying to criminalize it across the country. Are you optimistic? I mean, I know this is very, very good for Democratic voter turnout. It's not so good for women, especially women with not a lot of money. The majority of women who terminate pregnancies are already moms um, how do you feel the next couple of years are going to play out? Well, first of all, I think it's great that they are taking time to make a decision that impacts people and that they have the luxury to take time. <laughs> Women don't when we are when we find out we're pregnant, which is usually after six weeks. Um, so how ironic of that. Uh, yeah. But I, you know, I'm not at all optimistic. I, I, when one woman or child, Uh, who is in that situation suffers like we all suffer and people are dying. People aren't getting access to care. Um, These fascists are making laws that are making millions of people's lives so much worse. And so uh, you, you, I'm not optimistic. I mean, it's great that Biden is president. It's great that abortion is finally getting people to care. I can't believe it's taken this long, but 
I'm not thinking of like macro level politics. I'm thinking of somebody right. who had a miscarriage and can't actually get help or somebody right. who you know, I just, you know, or like a child who it was raped and, 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 and can't get access to drugs. Like exactly. It, it, and there are so many cases now of this happening. So it's awful. I hope it I hope it galvanizes people to vote against fascists. But I also would hope that school, the everyday school shootings would do the same. I I, I think it's really hard. <laughs> uh, it's getting harder. I mean, it's out of our control in many ways. People are going to the polls, but if the districts are gerrymandered and there's voter suppression, it's hard That's for, right. for so we're, it's in a, we're in a scary time. I do not know how, how the 2024 election is going to go, but... I don't either, but I, I know that, you know, as comedians, we have a responsibility to tell the truth. And you inspire me so much because you go to the most uncomfortable topics from a place of morality and wit and make it funny. And that's how that's how the battle is going to be won by by being more entertaining and again, <laughs> by telling comedy, jokes. <laughs> but comedy is the comedy is the best delivery system for truth, because, you know, that's why I think people trust comedians more than journalists, more than they trust politicians. If you can make someone laugh. It's because their brain has recognized you said something that was true in a clever way. And inherently, there's the trust there. And that's why I think your work is so important for you to do a, a set about abortion while you were pregnant. I mean, that's so George fun. Carlin level <laughs> shit, Jenna. Oh, and it's, thank it's you. Such, such yeah, a lady to... killer. That was on Peacock. And it was the most Great. fun to tell those jokes while so pregnant. I feel the same way about you, by the way. So thanks for having me on and being so supportive. Thank you so much. Jenna Friedman's new book, her debut collection, Not Funny, Essays on Life, Comedy, Culture, Etc., is on sale now. Do yourself a favor, and it makes a great gift for the smart, moral, cool person in your life, too. Jenna, thank you so much for joining us. Can't wait to see you in person again soon. Thank you. We're going to take a quick break. We will be right back with your calls at 866-997-4748. This is Progress. Don't go away. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. I'm John Fugel saying this is SiriusXM Progress. Let's go to the phones. Lola, you have been on hold for so long. Thank you. Hello. I know you're making me wait. I'm, I hate to make a lady wait. I know. If you don't remember, this is Lola from the NYU days. We actually Hello, Lola. Hi. And, um, and the Catholic Center. And mm -hmm. I am calling you because you have been a holdout on Spoutable. And I am reminding <laughs> you to create your account. I will haunt you. Till the end of time, but this uh, is the last day that you can transfer your legacy check mark. Oh, well, how do you do that then? Spoutable is the cool are on one. There. Bob Everyone Spence I know is on there. there. Kimberly yes. Thompson's on there. Everyone's well, Chris Boozy started it. We have to explain. Chris Boozy started it, who's so great at using data to call out these Republicans. And I mean, I, I joined Aww. Post. And I joined um, Counter. I, I joined Tribal. And I joined Mastodon. 
and I joined uh, Counter Social. Uh, so I thought it was all up to date, but I've got to do this one as well, huh? So I, I will. You I will. are not, and you have to do it now. I will wait for you while you do this <sighs> all right. right now. Next, next commercial break, I will join Spoutable. Which will make okay, you better because um, <laughs> this is very exciting for people who don't know. This is very user friendly platform. It's a lot like Twitter. If you can use Twitter, you can use Spoutable. But the difference is that um, Spoutable actually enforces um, rules. There's yes. no hate speech that's, that's right. allowed. It's safe for the LGBTQ plus community. And, you know, it's, it's just a great platform. And with all the changes that Elon's making, it's really just I'm hoping that it's going to be the alternative for everyone. I hope so as well. I, I, everything I've, from everything I've heard, Lola, Spoutable is everything they promised us Mastodon would be. Yeah, I, I think I have two accounts on Mastodon. I'm not even sure. <laughs> um, no, I, I, the only way I, I tried to get back into them, and the only way I could access it was through the welcome email, and then I tried to delete the account. And I, I like it, it's just too confusing. <laughs> Spoutable is great. It's you know for people who, who um, I, you know I have an account on on post. I think I posted once. Okay. It, just, it, it seems like it's like a lot of people talking at each other, but not interacting. There's a lot right. of interaction on Spoutable. And so I've got it, but I've got to do it by before midnight tonight, right? Because after midnight, uh, well, like I if think- I want to keep my all-important blue check mark because i don't know if you know this yes. lola but i i define my significance as a human based on having a blue check mark it's very important to me should. and my self-esteem yeah, yeah 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 i mean that's 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 self-esteem um but but so if i want to keep the blue check mark on spoutable i have to join by midnight tonight okay i'll, I'll try to yeah, be busy in the commercial breaks i don't know if you know this but if you if you lose your blue check mark i mean that's like your power you're going to disappear you, <laughs> you won't be what? real anymore Here's the the sad thing is I'm going to lose my blue check mark tomorrow, um, but I'm but not going to pay. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to pay a billionaire eight dollars. So that's the happy part of it. Well, the whole thing is just so ridiculous. Anyway, I mean, it's so absurd. It's, but, but I mean, people are blue impersonate. check. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, it was to stop. I'm sorry, it's to stop impersonation. But I got followed by someone um, a few days ago, and it was turns out to be this i looked at the account and i'm like okay this is so fake it turns out this guy is pretending to be a podiatrist on tlc i've mm-hmm. never seen this show it's it's called my feet are killing me so i did a search and there's like there, I, i've even lost track there's at least 50 accounts pretending to be this one guy i don't know if any of them really are but wow. you know and it's it's just like in the olden days you know we used to pre-Elon. We used to be able to tell if someone was the person they were pretending to be. Well, yeah, that's why I liked it. Mark. That's what I liked yeah, about verified so. Twitter. Like, I, I, it wasn't that they were all celebrities. They weren't all celebrities, but you knew if you were in the verified feed, you weren't going to have some some anonymous troll uh, uh, calling you a pedo because people would actually have to show their name and face like adults do. And so you knew that at least for the most part. Unless you were, you know, debating Ben Shapiro or something, you, you would know that you, you would have like civil discourse. I, I wrote a little poem about it with Lola. Verified Twitter used to be where folks showed their identity. We knew who was who in that old space where people had to show their face. Now it's a place where trolls can hide anonymously verified spreading hate and lies and rumor. They'll pay eight bucks to call you groomer. And yeah. that, that's it, really. That's awesome. all that's left. Yeah. Yeah. 
you know, I, 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 I like that. I like that uh, Joe Biden's not asking me to pay his legal fees. And um, I like that uh, Spoutable isn't asking me to pay $8 a month to prove I'm me. So I'll take it. I can live without the blue check mark. Well, you know, also a problem, too, is, you know, with with the disinformation on the platform, you know, you used to be able to see, okay, a blue check, that's from a journalist, you know, that's probably, you know, and now you've got, I mean, you just see all kinds of banana things now, and, you know, they're all blue checks, and you're like, okay, this is, you know, it's just so much to sort through now. I know, know, but thank you, Lola, for calling. We got got to hit a break, but you reminded me to throw a little funeral for my blue check mark. That is, assuming Elon's competent and can do what he says. Have a great evening. Please call back more often. We got to hit a break, but we'll be back in just a moment with your calls. I'm John Fiegel saying this is SiriusXM Progress. We are at 866-997-4748. Now, by now, you know, earlier this week, there was a strange kind of hearing in New York. Jim Jordan, for some reason, scientists and historians will debate for millennia, decided to bring his committee to New York City. Uh, Why? Because Jim Jordan does the bidding of Donald Trump, and that is all he knows. And he pretty much, at taxpayer expense, moved the entire committee to New York for one day just to attack New York DA Alvin Bragg. Not to refute Bragg's claims, not to actually debate the substance of Bragg's case, just to be, well, he's Jim Jordan, just to be what uh, I guess the Bible would call a whiny little bitch. Now, fortunately, one of the best writers in politics is John Nichols for The Nation. His new piece is called Jim Jordan Wants to Make Alvin Bragg the Villain, But It's Not working. John, welcome back. I I didn't realize there was so much historical precedent for this little show trial Jim Jordan tried this week. It's good to see you. It's a pleasure to be with you, my friend. You look comfortable in your setting. Uh, Thank you. very Well, we have a lot of uh, my wife's co-workers staying from out of town. So this week I'm broadcasting from the dining room in my apartment. So thank you very much. I'm doing the same. Uh, Yeah, I'm usually in a boiler room doing the show. Um, So, uh, you know, we had a lot of laughs in the beginning of the week with this because it just seems like, I mean, it was the Jim Jordan of cell phones and it kind of blew up in his face. Um, He was roundly ridiculed by the media and by members of his own committee. And I don't really understand. I got to be honest. I don't understand what his goal was beyond sucking up to Donald Trump and maybe getting a soundbite on Fox News that evening. I think that's a lot of it. But I think also that um, Jordan is kind of he lives in this bubble of the uh, Republican caucus or Republican Party in the House of Representatives, and they feel they have to do certain things. Right. It's Mm -hmm. they have to show that they're relevant. Um, They're meaningless on, on most levels. Right. They can't govern. They can't pass laws that will that will mean anything. Um, They can hold hearings. And in this case, uh, if he'd held a hearing in Washington, it wouldn't have had much meaning. So he went up to New York um, and put put his little event together. But the bizarre thing about it was that, you know, he didn't call Bragg. He didn't call the mayor. He didn't call people who knew anything about what was going on statistically. (laughs) He called some New Yorkers. Right. And they were. and, And, you know, New York is a city of a lot of people. You can find you know, a half dozen folks to gripe about anything. But the the bottom line was that he didn't put together even the baseline of a serious hearing. And, you know, it, it did kind of blow up in his face. He had the mayor out front, 
you know, citing the statistics uh, that New York's crime is down in an awfully lot of areas. He had mm-hmm. Bragg putting out a, a devastating response. And um, Bragg's response did note that uh, crime was up in Ohio and at much higher levels than it was in New York. Oh, yes. And so I, I have the numbers. I have the numbers, John. It, yes. Because if, if Jim Jordan hadn't done this, uh, millions of mooks like me wouldn't know that Ohio has a homicide rate 49 percent higher than New York City, an assault rate 34 percent higher than New York City and a larceny rate 346 times higher than NYC. I mean, it, it just he, you know, it's like I, I want to say I, I, I want to look away, but it's Jim Jordan. He's too good at looking yeah. away. I got to find a better choice of words. Um, yeah. I mean, when when you've got liberals cheering the current mayor of New York, you know that your stunt hasn't gone well. Right. This is, a you know, it is an interesting dynamic, right? Because Eric Adams was not exactly the, the left wing choice for mayor of New York. But Eric Adams is a former police captain. Um, he does know his way around police statistics. And frankly, I think he was um, mad about the approach that Jim Jordan took. I think he felt it was insulting to the city. Um, It was, you know, inaccurate on a lot of fronts. And the bizarre part about it was that that Jordan came in primarily with a script, right? And and his script was that, you know, politics has taken over. The the Manhattan DA's office has become a political vehicle. Right. Mm-hmm. And and that that somehow was endangering New Yorkers and also endangering Donald Trump. Yeah. And and so that was his line. He wanted to deliver that message. I think he would have been quite satisfied if he could have just hightailed it out after having done so. But um, it didn't work out that way. In fact, there was actually a, a substantial protest against yes, the hearing. And the protesters were trying to get into the hearing. They were outside chanting, let us in. And so you had actual New Yorkers saying, you know, we would like to we'd like to be in the room here. And of course, Jim Jordan wasn't inviting them in. <laughs> you know, I, I have to ask you about this, John, because I, I, I didn't know this. You know, well, we all know that once upon a time, Republicans like Teddy Roosevelt were ferociously against corruption in government. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I think don't think Teddy Roosevelt would have a home in the party today. And I must confess, I didn't know until I read your piece that Thomas Dewey, who we mainly think of in history as the guy that Roosevelt beat, but Certainly. that and 86 Truman. years ago. Right. That, that, and Truman as well. You're right. That, that years and years ago, uh, he was in a very similar position, um, but it was had a very different outcome. What, what did Thomas Dewey, who was the most, I guess, the most famous Manhattan DA ever before Alvin Bragg, mm-hmm. what did he do in 1937 to stake his political claims? Well, this is the interesting thing. Thomas Dewey is a Republican. And these were this is back in the days when Republicans could get elected uh, to positions in New York City. In fact, the mayor of New York, Fiorello LaGuardia, was elected on the Republican and the Fusion ticket in, back right. in those days. And and so in the mid-1930s, Dewey was uh, considered to be one of the sharpest young lawyers, uh, not just in New York, but in the country. And he was appointed mm-hmm. as a special prosecutor to go after racketeering, which was a huge issue in New York. And it wasn't just a crime issue. It was also an economic issue. During the Great Depression, racketeers were really putting it to working class people. They were making folks' lives dramatically worse. Um, and so being a, a, a lawyer on behalf of the people uh, going after the racketeers actually made you a pretty popular guy. And so Dewey was talked into running for Manhattan DA, and he didn't want to do it. He wanted to continue with his, this special prosecutor position. But they finally said, look, you know, 
if you want to end corruption in New York, if you want to end the racketeering, you got to be the DA and you have to take on not just the racketeers, but their political allies, which was Tammany yeah. Hall, the machine. And Dewey, when he announced his candidacy in 1937 for DA, said specifically, his headline in the New York Times, that he's going to take on Tammany Hall. And so Dewey ran for DA promising to take on political wrongdoers. Well, someone ran for Manhattan DA with the promise that they were going to take on high profile political wrongdoers and the voters elected that person to do that job? By an overwhelming landslide, he beat the machine, despite the fact that the machine tried really hard to stop him and was, you know, just belittling and attacking him the whole way, calling him a coward, calling him, you know, all sorts of names. I know that's amazing that that somebody who might be targeted by the Manhattan DA would call the DA names. Um, And uh, Dewey gets elected and he does, in fact, go after um, the racketeers and the bad players in Tammany Hall. Um, And through it all, his political opponents screamed and yelled and and made a lot of noise about it. But the people in New York actually quite liked it. They were they were quite happy with it. Um, And in short order, uh, they elected Dewey governor of New York and then twice made him the Mm. Republican nominee for president. So let's fast forward 86 years, and you've got a popularly elected DA who is going after a high-profile political figure for corruption, 34 counts of falsifying business records in the first degree. Did Jim Jordan in his hearings actually address the specific charges against Donald Trump with any attempts to refute them? No, 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 no. Um, You know, Jim Jordan read from the playbook, and the playbook from the start of this for the Trump-aligned Republicans has been to attack Bragg, not to talk about the charges, not to talk about, you know, the, about the the actual facts at hand. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Not even about that much of a defense of Trump, although sometimes they'll 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 do a, you know, kind of a, a minimal job of that. But primarily it's attack Alvin Bragg. And it, the goal is to make Alvin Bragg into this kind of villain, into some sort of yeah. horrible figure who's doing something that's never been done before. Um, who is, you know, politicizing the office. Well, what I pointed out in my piece was um, this office has, when it has gone after corruption throughout its history, been a call, accused of being political, right? That's right. This isn't something new. And what Bragg is doing isn't something new. Now, right. this is separate and apart from Bragg's case. It may or may not succeed. You know, you're there, you know there'll be juries and, you know, all the the you know, kind of back and forth of, of a legal struggle. But the bottom line is the Jor- Jim Jordan line, the Jim Jordan attack on Alvin Bragg, which is part of a broader, you know, Republican Party, uh, you know, conservative media attack on Bragg, uh, is built on a, on a complete falsehood. This is oh, what yeah. he's doing is not, it is not out of line with what a Manhattan DA might do. Uh, in fact, uh, he promised to go after uh, political wrongdoers, uh, and particularly said that if, if the facts led him to a case against Donald Trump, he would pursue it when he ran. People knew that was what he was running on. In fact, that was a part of, I think, why he was elected. And he is doing what he promised to do. Um, mm. Again, if we go back to Thomas Dewey, that's, that's what Thomas Dewey did to, as well. Now, here's something that's different. And what really troubles me about this, I get that Jim Jordan is just doing this to get his clips on Fox that night, right? And and yeah. Jim Jordan doesn't care about the criticisms. He doesn't care about Adam Schiff calling him out. He knows none of that stuff will air on Fox that night. 
But I don't find any way to separate this from the racial politics. Donald Trump has been taking great pains to point out that it's a black DA in New York and a black attorney general in New York and a black DA in Georgia who are going after him. And uh, Jim Jordan really did everything he could with the dog whistles to talk about how he feels that Alvin Bragg is lazy. It seems like mm-hmm. continually that was the message. They, they're not into fighting crime. They're not upholding the law. They can't be bothered to do their jobs, but they will go after Donald Trump. It seems like a message tailor made for a certain kind of Trump voter, which is to say a Trump voter. Yeah, but not a Trump voter in New York City or anywhere near it, right? This well, is exactly this is really holding a hearing in New York for consumption, you know, I guess in some place in Wyoming uh, yeah. or Montana or, you know, or my own state of Wisconsin, to be quite honest. There's there's Trump voters here. But the the bottom line on it is, is that you're right. It is this portrayal of Alvin Bragg as somehow um, inept as you mm-hmm. mentioned, lazy or all these other terms that they throw at him. This is a a, a veteran of the New York State Attorney General's office uh, of the, uh, you know, United States Attorney's office. He is a, he's a top lawyer and, and yeah. somebody who is highly regarded in, in his field. He leads an office that is you know generally considered to be the first among equals of DA's mm-hmm. offices in the United States. This is this is the one that that has the reputation again going back to Dewey, but then the people who succeeded Dewey in that position uh, were, you know, by most cases, epic figures in, in the yes. law. And and Bragg won a uh, Democratic primary against a number of capable opponents, and he didn't win it, you know, by being bombastic. He was actually one of the duller candidates in the primary, right? Yes. He actually talked about the law, right? Mm-hmm. And he talked about you know, you talk quite seriously about it. And I don't mean dull, like boring, but I mean, he just he wasn't somebody who went out of his way to, you know, be flashy. He was running as a lawyer and right. uh, people of, of Manhattan chose him. He won his primary and then he won the general election against a Republican who criticized him with, I believe, 84 percent of the vote. I mean, but. <laughs> Alvin Bragg also, you know, he's not the son of a former secretary of state. Alvin Bragg is someone who does not come from a position of power. He's really arguably the first non-legacy DA Manhattan's ever had. This is a guy who's had a cop pull a gun on him in his life. This is a very different kind of prosecutor than Donald Trump has ever faced before. Well, that's the interesting thing. In fact, he may be, it is is credible to say um, that he may be um, the first non-legacy DA since Thomas Dewey. Dewey was born yeah. in a small town in Michigan and moved to New York and and rose on merit, rose on his on his skills. And mm-hmm. that's what happened with Bragg. Bragg didn't get to this position because his dad was secretary of state or right. uh, was some sort of powerful figure. Uh, he didn't get into that position because he was part of the political machine or part of something that was, you know, that sort of paved his way to the job. He ran for the position as a lawyer's lawyer. Um, so Ramford's yeah. position is somebody who had been in the New York AG's office, in the U.S. Attorney's office, and had established a very strong reputation. And that's frankly why he got the key endorsements, because people actually wanted a skilled lawyer in that position. That's right. So I have a very serious question for you, Mr. Nichols, um, because something unexpected happened this week. Alvin Bragg sued Jim Jordan 
for interfering with the efforts to prosecute Trump by launching, in his words, an unprecedentedly brazen and unconstitutional attack on the prosecutor's office. You work for the nation. Um, Were your were your co-workers okay, or was anybody overcome with shock at a Democrat fighting back? Because I wasn't I had a bit of a heart flutter (laughs) myself. I my 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 constitution was not prepared to see a Democrat actually fight back, actually punch back against Republicans the way Alvin Bragg did. Look, this is a guy who, uh, quite frankly, isn't a politician. Uh, the one thing you remember right. about Alan Bragg is he's a lawyer and and um, he's surrounded by a team of lawyers. They came into this job. They are facing uh, an attack, which I think they legitimately believe is is an attempt to intimidate, an attempt to interfere. And they do what a good lawyer does. You push back um, and they push back in the courts uh, with this lawsuit. Uh, the also, if you if you're not following the New York uh, or Manhattan DA office's uh, Twitter feed, you should be. Because right. um, they're putting out very blunt, very strong statements. They're putting the facts out. They are they are pushing back, and I think it is it's it's very much in the the character of the historic New York D- DA's office. This is That's a right. big city. This is uh, a city with tabloid newspapers and media and you know all sorts of stuff. And you you go big there. You speak you know loud, um, mm-hmm. but that doesn't make him any less of a of a serious lawyer. Um, What it just says is that he's operating in the tradition of this office. And again, if you go back and you look at when Morgenthau had that position or when Mm -hmm. Dewey had it way back, what you're going to find is these were skilled lawyers who did not hesitate to also use the bully pulpit if they needed to, because they knew they were going against big, powerful, bad players. And I'm so glad you mentioned following his social media because I follow him on Twitter and I recommend it for everyone to see just how hard his office is working at fighting crime. Uh, A lot harder than Jim Jordan's is. John, we haven't had you on in a couple of weeks since this indictment, so uh, I would be most remiss if I didn't ask your thoughts on these proceedings in general. I realize this is just the first in a long series, and and I've been trying to caution our listeners to not view it as the first president to be indicted, but just Trump's first indictment. But I think that's the the right way to go at it. And look, there's a lot of debate about, you know, whether this should have been the first uh, office to charge, right? Because there's so many directions on which the charges against Trump could come from. Mm -hmm. Um, There is also a lot of debate uh, among, you know, legal scholars and others, you know, is this the right way to go with 34, um, you know, business fraud charges? Would there be another, you know, is there another approach? You know, look, I grew up around a courthouse. My dad was the uh, court commissioner in Racine County, Wisconsin. Um, I literally, as a, as a kid, grew up in courtrooms and run around the courthouse. It was my playground. And, and I can tell you that um, some of the most important cases uh, that, that come out are not from the highest profile place. It's not the Department of Justice always. It's not, you know, that the Atlanta case. It, in this case, it's come from New York. And um, we will see whether these charges stick, whether it goes someplace. My sense is that they're, they're going to get more traction than you believe, because as Ralph Nader says, this is really a corporate crime case. And, yes. um, and the New York DA's office or Manhattan DA's office is actually very good at corporate crime cases. This is an area of specialty for them. And I think a lot of people are interpreting this. They're saying, oh, it's a political case. It's going to be hard because of the politics. Perhaps political cases are hard, and, and this one may be. But if you look at the core corporate crime issues here, A, that's, again, something this office is good at prosecuting, and B, mm. something that you know I, I think most people would accept 
uh, it sticks to Donald Trump, right? So I yeah. think the indictments, I think the indictments have the potential to have some real traction. I think you're right. They are the first of many. And the truth of the matter is that when all is said and done, we may not remember these charges mm-hmm. as clearly as we do others that come later on. But uh, that doesn't in any way detract from the fact that these charges, whether I think it's perfect, whether you think it's perfect, whether any legal scholar thinks it's perfect, they clearly freaked out Donald Trump yeah. and Jim Jordan. And That's if it. you want a good measure of you know the seriousness of what's what's going on here, look at the response to it. There has been a full court press, an aggressive effort to delegitimize these indictments, to delegitimize this DA, to oh, attack, yeah. to smear the whole bit. And you have to ask yourself, if it's if it's not that relevant, if it's not going anyplace, why are they taking it so seriously? Let's just hope it's enough to knock Ron DeSantis out of the race. Before I let you go <laughs> to bed, Mr. Nichols, I got t- two really quick questions. Uh, one, any thoughts on the Dominion settlement yesterday? Were you uh, surprised at the amount or uh, that it almost came to trial? Um, I'm sad that it didn't come to trial. Look, if I was a lawyer for Dominion, I probably would have said, you know, take the 800 million and the the sort of apology and 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 go for it because I think that's you know generally that's what lawyers do. Um, yes. But um, I do think it's a frustrating reality. You know, we were sort of counting on a corporation to you know see something through, and corporations don't always do that. Corporations do yeah. what's in their interest, and so we didn't get the trial. I think the trial would have been fascinating. Um, I think there's a lot of really complex issues here, and there are freedom of the press issues. Um, but uh, I think that what Dominion's lawyers, by all accounts, had done here was to make a case that this was this is one of those unique instances where um, a media institution had gone so far over the line, so aggressively, with the purpose of advantaging uh, itself with its viewers. Right? You know, this yes. was not a decision made to you know, tell the truth about what was going on. This is decisions made to try and you know, build out and maintain their viewership. And I think they were, they were gonna make that case. I understand from tonight's reports that um, Rupert Murdoch was supposed to be their second witness mm-hmm. in the trial. So that would have been That's very right. interesting. Um, yeah. So anyway, it didn't happen. Uh, I, I do think that it's consequential that you got you know, an $800 million settlement. I mean, I'm, you know, it's, not, it's not in the billions, that's, but it seems like a lot of money. That's more than me. I make in a month. It's more than I make in a whole year, actually. Yeah. Some, several weeks for me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and before I let you go, Mr. Nichols, I, I'm such a big fan of your writing, uh, and we've discussed many of your books over the years on this show, Fight for the Soul of the Democratic Party, more recently, Coronavirus Criminals and Pandemic Profiteers. You are right now working on a new book with a co-writer who's also a friend of this show, uh, Senator Bernie Sanders. Can you tell us anything about the book? Look, it's out. And, oh, it's uh, out. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, we've been amazingly enough. I know you're joking here. Um, we are. Um, we we've been six weeks on the New York Times bestseller list, so it turned out kind of okay. Um, That's how long it's been since I've had you, John. I'm so embarrassed. Yeah. Now I have to book you back just to talk about the new book. The title is "It's Okay to Be Angry About Capitalism," and um, some people have been amused by the title. Uh, a lot of folks have, have very happily. A lot of folks have read it, um, and. We've been having uh, we've been having a pretty good time with it. It's it's been an interesting experience. This is you know Senator Sanders' picture is on the front. I I 
helped write the book and I was glad to be a part of it. Um, the bottom line is that what we argue at the, at the simplest level is that if you want to get bogged down in the petty politics of the moment of blaming some individual or some group for your problems, you can. But if you want to get to reality, what you have to recognize is that most of the challenges we face in our society root back to an out of control, monopolistic approach to capitalism. We don't, we're not arguing that capitalism has to go away. What we're arguing is that it has to be regulated and it has to be you know, guided in a way that serves the great mass of humanity, not a handful of billionaires and an even smaller handful of multinational corporations. And uh, it's a fun book to write. Uh, we write a lot about uh, um, you know, tax policy and healthcare and education. We even interviewed the uh, education minister of Finland um, hmm. which has generally does the best in scores for, you know, schooling and stuff in the world. And what we came away with was a core lesson that there are ways that the United States could be organized to make sure that people make a decent living, that, yes. you know, if you're creative, you can, you can make your money and stuff like that, but you can't exploit, you shouldn't be able to exploit the system, uh, economically and politically to such an extent that you end up with hundreds of billions of dollars and your employees are struggling are struggling to get by. There's something wrong with that approach. And we say that people are angry about it. And we say to them, it's cool. It's okay to be angry about capitalism. John, I wish I could have you on the show every week. You give me so much hope and inspiration. I will definitely read the book. I'm so sorry I didn't know it had already come out. I was going by your Twitter handle. So please, please come back again in a couple of weeks and let's, let's do a deep dive on it. I'd love to talk even I'm deeper about it. John, you keep on top of so many things so very well, and I'm completely honored uh, to to be with you anytime and and completely, completely excited um, to talk with you about, and, and we're probably the only two people in America doing this tonight, to talk with you about Thomas Dewey. <laughs> well, hey, you're following a dynamite talk about the Mandalorian finale. We're that kind of show. John, thank you so much. What a great pleasure to see you. This is Progress. Progress.